Jeff Ebert, and welcome to my podcast, Gospel Wabi Sabi, God's Good News for Imperfect People Like You and Me. This is Season 4, Episode 9, and we're plowing our way through the minor prophets of the Old Testament, a portion of the Bible that many people, quite frankly, never take too seriously because they find it hard to apply to life today. And so that's my goal in this podcast, is to help reveal the impact of these ancient words on our walk of faith today. And if you'd like to help support me in that endeavor, you can become a financial supporter of Gospel Wabi Sabi by following the link in the program notes. Well, as we get into today's podcast, I'd like you to do something for me. If you've got a pen or pencil or want to use your phone to make a note, I want you to write something down, make a note, your answer to this very simple question. You ready? Here it is. Just write down the answer to this. Where will you be this time tomorrow? Where will you be this time tomorrow? What will you be doing? Just write that down. TTT, this time tomorrow. You could be in a classroom or an office cubicle. You could be grocery shopping or in yoga class. You could be commuting or having a cup of coffee with a friend, getting ready for bed. Whatever it is, just write that down. Where will you be, TTT, this time tomorrow? And hold on to that because you'll need it at the end of today's podcast. All right. Today we're into another pretty obscure part of the Bible, the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. I don't really want to get into the debate about how to pronounce his name. just depends on how you place the emphasis on each syllable. So I'm kind of sticking with the traditional Habakkuk. Though this little book is only three chapters long, it isn't well known, but there are many theologians and Bible scholars who would say Habakkuk is one of the most important books in the entire Bible, because it tackles one of the toughest questions, one of the most distressing problems that human beings have ever had to face. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And why does it seem like the wicked prosper? That's the problem that Habakkuk is wrestling with in this little book. Or to paraphrase it this way, how can a a good God allow evil to exist? How can God allow pain and suffering and heartache? Is he really a God of love or is he a God who is indifferent to our suffering? Does God just not care about all the injustice and evil we see done uh, to people in our world? Or maybe God doesn't does care, but he's not powerful enough to do anything about it. Maybe God is too weak. And that's the cry of Habakkuk's heart. God, what are you doing? What are you up to? Why God? Why is this all so confusing? Habakkuk writes out his questioning as a dialogue that he's having with God. His book reads like a poetic debate between Habakkuk and Yahweh God. Here's how he states the problem in chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralyzed, and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. Now that little snippet from Habakkuk sounds like that could have been written in this morning's news. Violence, wrongdoing, strife. Conflict, twisted justice. Habakkuk is facing some really serious problems. He's not writing abstract, purely philosophical musings about the nature of God and human suffering. He is in the trenches of life. 
He's in a life and death situation. He lived in the time right before the Babylonians invaded the land of Judah in the 6th century BC, when the land of Israel had had completely decayed. His once great nation was on the verge of total anarchy. This was not some academic exercise. Everywhere he looked, it was bad. Bad and double bad. Yes, he understood that God was at the end of his rope with the disobedient and defiant nation that had refused his many repeated offers of forgiveness and mercy. But Habakkuk is still wondering how God could let it get so bad. How could he let so much evil run roughshod over his beloved land? Why doesn't God just intervene, just send a few miracles, make it all right? Just snap his cosmic fingers and poof, make everything right. Habakkuk sees the people suffering under the corrupt and unjust leaders of his land. He sees his neighbors, his own people, chasing after false gods and worshiping pagan idols. And he is wondering, why doesn't God just step in and do something dramatic, something unmistakable to set things right? I think I've asked that exact same question more than a few times myself over the past decade. God, why don't you intervene in some dramatic way and make things right? The name Habakkuk means the embracer. To get at the meaning of his name, you should think of a parent whose daughter or son has been injured by a cheap shot by a bully in a sporting event. I mean, the really cheap shot by the mutant kid who is twice the size of everyone else with a questionable birth certificate. And to make things worse, the ref saw it and let it go. No penalty, nothing. While your child may have a concussion, the parent gathers up the hurt child, comforts him or her with a, with a bitterness and anger that enters their own heart because of the injustice of it. The heart cries out, this is wrong. Why doesn't God do something? How can a just God permit such wrong? Or worse, think of a child wounded or killed in a drive-by shooting. This is wrong. In that way, the prophet Habakkuk gathered up all the hurt of Judah and cried out at the seeming silence of God. It's a hard lesson to learn that life isn't always fair and the good guys don't always win. But that's what Habakkuk is saying in verses 2 through 4. God answers Habakkuk in verse 5 through 11, saying in effect, I am doing something, but you're not going to understand it. I am doing something, and you're not going to like it. I am raising up the Chaldeans, which was another name for the Babylonians. I'm raising up the Chaldeans to punish the wicked in Israel. I am not indifferent. I am moving to judge evil, but you should be careful what you wish for. Isn't that the truth? Be careful what you wish for. And this brings no relief to the troubled prophet. I mean, if he was puzzled by the apparent inactivity of God against the wickedness of the rulers of Judah, he is now even more troubled by the problem of how a righteous and holy God could use an even more ungodly nation to punish his own people. The Chaldeans were well known for their indifference to human suffering and their gross immorality and the callous luxury they enjoyed at the expense of others. And now God is going to use this despicable nation as a means of his judgment on Judah. For Habakkuk, that just did not compute. He could not comprehend how a loving God could let that happen. Honestly, though, whenever someone asks those big theological questions about why would a good God allow evil to exist in the world, I think what is really being asked is much more personal. What's really being asked is, what about me, God? Are you going to allow evil to intersect with my life? Are you going to let this happen to me? Or maybe it already has and you're wondering why. Why would God let this thing happen to me? I think that our questions about evil and suffering at their root are always very personal. Why do you allow suffering? 
According to Nikki Gumbel, the originator of the Alpha Course, which since when it began in 1993 has engaged with more than 28 million spiritual seekers in 169 countries around the world, in trying to answer their basic questions about the Christian faith, Nikki Gumbel says the question of suffering is the number one question people have about God, and it's the number one excuse people use to stop taking any steps toward faith in God. They're angry. Angry because something bad happened. Some form of suffering came into their lives. Somebody died. Somebody hurt them. Something that was undeserved, and they now blame God for it. And so they carry a big chip on their shoulder, and they think God should have somehow shielded them from the normal course of human life. They don't understand that we live in a fallen world. The world is not how God originally designed it. The world has lost <clears throat> its original perfection. So that there is disease, there is death, there is sin and all its consequences, and no one is immune from those consequences, not even Christians. And because they don't understand that, they direct their anger about their suffering at God and consciously or unconsciously say, it's all his fault. That's a really important thing for us all to remember, because sometimes we as believers, we don't portray an honest picture of life to people around us. We're afraid to be honest about our own struggles and our own questionings as though that somehow makes you less of a good Christian, less of a faithful believer. Some think the church is a place we have to pretend to be happy and have it all together. But that's not honest. Struggles and grief are real. They remain. Challenges continue. And as we step back to look at the big picture, we see suffering is a part of life for everyone, including believers. And if we're not honest about suffering, then when people experience a difficult situation, it shakes their faith to the core because they, they don't think they're allowed to struggle or to ask tough questions. If Habakkuk teaches us anything, it's that it's natural to question God. It's natural, normal to ask why. It's okay in prayerful conversation to ask God, why do you allow me to suffer? Habakkuk isn't alone in this kind of asking. The Psalms are full of King David's honest questions and even his anger towards God. The desire for explanation rings throughout the Bible. For example, Jeremiah 12.1, we read, You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? It is a question of justice, God. Why do you let people do evil things? Whether it's the image of a starving child, the distress of someone who has lost their home to a flood or the diagnosis of cancer, the randomness of a car accident, a broken relationship, a failed business, the death of a loved one. When we meet suffering, the thought leaps into our minds, why God? How could you allow it to happen? Or why don't you protect me better? Sooner or later, all of us will have reason to ask the question, why me, Lord? Every person who lives long enough will eventually encounter circumstances that are difficult to explain theologically. Cancer, sudden infant death syndrome, divorce, rape, loneliness, infertility, rejection. These and a million other sources of human suffering produce inevitable questions that trouble the soul. Over the years, I've learned that we shouldn't be fooled by the happy faces we often see on Sunday mornings. Everybody who comes to church has a story, and that story includes pain and suffering. Behind each smiling face, you'll discover a tale of pain, of difficulty, of heartache, and many unanswered questions, if we were honest. Not that we don't experience happiness. We do, at least most of us do. 
But no one gets a free pass. No one gets a free ride through life. No one escapes some level of suffering. Into each life, some rain must fall. No one lives in the sunshine forever. But let's consider for a moment a few of the different ways people commonly react when they're facing suffering and difficulty. The first is denial. This is where most of us begin in dealing with suffering. It's the Liam Neeson tough guy mentality. Just grit your teeth, smile even when you're hurting, never let them see you sweat. Don't reveal what's real. Don't reveal anything about yourself. When someone is in denial, they won't admit the truth even when they know you know the truth. They'll say, how are you doing? I mean, you'll say, how are you doing? I'll say, great, I'm doing great. As though super spiritual people can never be down or sad or depressed or hurting. You know, they're not telling the truth. We're all like that occasionally. There's something in all of us that makes us pretend that everything is going okay even when it's not. And it's more than just trying to be positive. We pretend the problem is not there, that it's not as bad as it really is. Then we get angry. We get bitter. We shake our fists at God silently in our own hearts, but anger bleeds, anger spreads, and eventually we take it out on the people around us. They bear the brunt of our anger when it's not really them that we're angry at. Or maybe the anger that we carry turns into blame. We blame others for the hurt we've experienced. It's their fault, their decisions, not mine. Anger and blame are often two sides of the same coin. The boss was a jerk, and that's why I lost my job. And you carry that anger into your next job. When we don't really deal with anger constructively, it affects every relationship of life, including our relationship with God. It's impossible to go through life angry at others and maintain a warm and positive relationship with the Lord. You can't hate your neighbor and love God at the same time. I think Jesus said something about that. Some Christians live that way for years, and then they wonder why God seems so distant and their prayers so empty and their Christian experience so lifeless. If that describes you, please take a good look inside because you will never get better until you deal with the anger that you have within. Our final option regarding suffering is to accept it and to learn from it. You can deny it, you can get angry, you can blame someone else, or you can accept what happens to you and to begin to learn. Of those four ways, only the last one is truly a healthy Christ-like way of dealing with the difficulties of life. When trouble comes, you really only have two choices. Either you become a victim or you become a student. And that is so much better to be a student. Being a student means asking yourself, what have I learned from this? Where do I find Jesus in all this? How can I grow from this painful experience? Having said that, I have to admit that there are many questions I can't answer about why bad things happen to God's people. Sometimes the reasons are obvious. More often, they're obscure. If, if I had all the time in the world, I still couldn't answer the questions about suffering because some of them simply defy human explanation, at least on this side of the grave. And ultimately, that's the answer given to Habakkuk. God reminds him, I am sovereign over all. Some of life will not make sense until you can see the whole of it, until you can look back and see the whole thing from my perspective. An explanation will come to you, but not on your timetable. God says this, Habakkuk 2.3, For the revelation awaits its time. It hastens to the end and will not prove false. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. God's saying, Habakkuk, The answer you're looking for, it isn't going to happen right away. There's going to be a lapse of time, but it will come. 
This is the character of God's revelation. First, God says an event will happen. And then he says, don't you worry about what happens in between. Even though it looks like everything is going wrong, what I have said will happen is going to happen. And if it seems to delay, wait for it. It will come. Then God goes on to state a principle that's quoted three times in the New Testament and forms the basis for the greatest movement that God has ever had among human beings. He says these words in verse 4 of chapter 2. Behold, him whose faith, or he whose faith is not upright, in him shall fall, but the righteous shall live by faith. These words are quoted in the New Testament in Romans, Galatians, and Hebrews. These three words from Habakkuk are quoted in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. They were the words that lit a fire in the heart of Martin Luther and ignited the Protestant Reformation in the year 1517. The righteous shall live by faith, not by good works or by circumstance or by insight or by reasoning, but by faith, by trust, by confidence in the fact that God will do what he says he will do. The righteous shall live by faith. Because that phrase has been attached to the grand scheme of the Protestant Reformation, we forget that it's also a very practical verse for us each and every day. We know that's at first made sense to Martin Luther, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let's bring that down to daily level. In these words, Habakkuk shows us that there are only two possible outlooks on life. There are only two attitudes by which we can face life. Either we face it in faith, depending upon God, even in the face of suffering or circumstances we don't fully understand, or we face life with fear, depending on our own level of ability to try and reason everything out. These are really the only two attitudes, and every day you face a battle to decide which one is going to rule your life. Today, am I going to live by faith, or am I going to live by fear? Which one will rule your life? And which one wins that daily battle makes all the difference in your attitudes and in your quality of life. You know, the atmosphere of our world, it is so poisoned with negativity right now. Don't you agree? So much, every time, everything's negative. Negativity is always rooted in fear, complaining, anger, jealousy, sadness. All those things are ultimately caused by fear that expresses itself in negative ways. The desire for power is often rooted in fear, fear of what might happen if somebody else has power over me. Fear of the unknown causes us to protect the status quo, even when change would be beneficial to us. Fear of being powerless causes us to try and control others and to complain. Fear of failing leads to inaction, to feeling paralyzed or, or powerless. Fear of being hurt leads to anger. Fear of not being good enough or successful enough or smart enough leads to jealousy and shame. Fear of not being loved leads us to loneliness. Fear holds us back from living the life God wants us to live. It paralyzes us from taking positive steps and makes us bark at people who drive and drive people away who are actually trying to help us. What do fear and faith have in common? Some wise guy will say they both begin with an F. Well, well deeper than that, what do they have in common? They both believe in a future that hasn't happened yet. Both fear and faith believe in a future that hasn't happened yet. Fear believes in a negative future. Faith believes in a positive future. If neither the positive nor negative future has happened yet, then why not choose to believe in the positive future? Why not believe that great things are coming your way? 
Why not walk in faith that God knows what he's doing? But it's up to you to choose. The only thing to hold you back from choosing faith is the fear of disappointment. The righteous shall live by faith. Telling yourself a story of faith will help fill you up with hope, optimism, and inspiration. Telling yourself a story of faith changes you from a passive victim to a positive actor. Believing that Christ, that in Christ you have a positive future leads to more powerful actions today because you believe in God, you can believe in yourself and the future, and you take the positive actions necessary to then create it. Faith helps you turn challenges into opportunities because faith is attractive. People will join you. People will be inspired by you. If you're negative, others will be negative towards you. They will flee before you. It's just a rule of life. The Bible says you reap what you sow. Positive energy is contagious. The righteous shall live by faith. When you have faith in your heart, it radiates to every cell in your body. Positive faith in God is contagious. So let me challenge you to project that faith to others and then see the impact. The righteous shall live by faith. That's a choice we are given every day, and it's a big choice. You can be a fear uh, germ and affect people with your negative energy, or you can be a big dose of, of positive vitamin C and infuse them with your faith in the Lord and his ultimate goodness. Either way, you're going to influence people. You choose how you will influence others. So, TTT, how will you live this time tomorrow? In fear or in faith? Look at what you wrote down about your life for tomorrow. In whatever circumstances you find yourself tomorrow, at this exact time, I want you to repeat Habakkuk's Habakkuk simple phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. And then ask yourself, am I? Am I living by faith? Am I living with a sense of Christ's presence in my life, even though I don't have all the answers to all of my questions? This time tomorrow, am I living in faith? And am I expressing that positive faith in God to those around me? This time tomorrow, consciously invite Christ into your classroom, your spin class, your phone call, your meeting, your moment alone with a cup of coffee. Just invite him into your day. Just be open to his presence in whatever circumstances you are and see what that's like. To know that Christ is with you. And if you'd like to share your TTT story with me, I'd love to hear it. You can email me at jebert1 at icloud.com or go through my website, jeffebert.com and share your story with me. A story about how you see Christ at work in your life at that moment. Please email it to me. Just a simple sentence or two describing your this time tomorrow. And uh, if you're willing to do that, um, then I might be able to share it anonymously, some of those stories in future podcasts, so others can be inspired by your stories of faith. You know, the disciples often did not understand what in the world Jesus was doing. They didn't understand his teachings about his own suffering or his own death. Not at all. In the upper room when he gathered with the disciples for his last supper, he did the servant's job of washing their feet to remove the dust from the journey. They didn't understand how he could do such a menial thing. So Jesus said, you do not realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll understand. That's his answer to us also in the face of suffering. You don't understand what I'm doing now, but later you will understand. He says, you do not realize what I'm doing, but later I'll let you know. Living in faith means we go on with life content with that answer, content that some things will remain a mystery until Christ decides to reveal them. So the righteous shall live by
by faith. And I hope that's your experience this week. Take care.